All right, my name is Fred. I am uh, the lead pastor here, and I am uh, so glad that y'all have joined us today, and it is great, great to see you. Here's what I hope happens. I hope today inspires you to walk in more faith and trust in Jesus today than you had yesterday, and even better, I hope it inspires you to walk in more faith and trust with Jesus tomorrow than you have today. And in particular, uh, here's what I hope and pray for. Um, I hope and pray that, that you, uh, us, all of us, uh, understand and have a deep rest in Jesus as we go through uh, this next short series. Um, but today, I hope that, that, that you have a particular kind of rest that we'll talk about in a minute. Now, the, the reason that we're, we're talking about rest is um, a few weeks ago, I did a sermon where I touched on the idea of rest. And it was just a small part of my sermon, but it generated lots of questions. Questions like, what is rest? Uh, questions like, how do I know if what I'm doing is rest? Uh, questions like, is, is God pleased with my rest? What happens if I don't rest? And, and all of these are great questions, and those questions led to, to really good conversations about what rest is. And, and so that's what made me, I talked about doing a Facebook Live about rest, but instead I thought, you know what, we're going to start a new series in September. I've got the month of August. Why not do a short series on rest? And, and here's what, what I, I think, uh, why I think this will be good. I think we could all use a little rest these days, couldn't we? Anybody need some rest these days? Well, well, here's what I hope happens. I hope we understand biblically and theologically what rest is. Um, because, listen, if, if I start talking about rest and, and kids and students in the room and, and those watching at home, if, if when I say rest and your first thought is I'm going to talk about naps and good sleep, uh, which are very important, by the way, um, but if that's what you're thinking, like, like, I understand what your next thought will be. It's like, I don't need that. Kids just naturally don't want to take naps, right? That's a sign that you're an adult, actually, if you want to take a nap. Um, but, but, but kids don't. And, 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 and I get that. Like, like, it's very easy for a kid or even a student to think, you know, kid, naps are for little kids and grandpas, right? Well, here's the deal. Hold on, because the rest that we're going to talk about is so much better and so much deeper, and so much more important. Because, you see, what we're going to see is that there are two different kinds of rest. There's a rest to, right? A rest to do something. There is a, a rest to recharge, right? That's, that's what taking a nap is. You take a nap so you can recharge and, 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 and go throughout your day a little bit better. Personally, I am a big fan of like the, the, the afternoon little power nap. Thomas Edison called it a key nap. He would, he would take a key and hold it in his fingers and he had let himself fall asleep. And when the, the key dropped, he'd put a, a dish under it. When the key dropped, he would wake up. And, and he said that's where he got a lot of his ideas was in that, in that kind of sleep. Big fan of that. Only I don't use a key. I just take a quick nap, right? But that's rest to recharge. You go to sleep at night. You try to get a good night's sleep so you can recharge for the next day. There's, there's rest to reengage. I know people that have taken a break from social media uh, because it's kind of produced these toxic thoughts in their hearts and, and in their heads. And so they take a break so that they can reengage better later. I know people that have, have taken a break from even like doing social engagements and going out at night so that they can reengage with people better. We rest to worship. 
Right? You go to bed early on Saturday night or at least have a calmer Saturday night so that you can engage better here. You, you, you even like even showing up here is a rest to worship. You come in and, and you kind of settle your heart and your soul so that you can worship and, and learn from God's words. And, and all of these are, are resting to do something better. And y'all hear me. They're all incredibly important. I think, I think you need to do all of these things, and they're really good, but we're not going to talk about that kind of rest. We're not going to talk about a rest, too, because here's the deal. That kind of rest can be done by anyone of any religion and, and really of any age, right? Now, now typically, resting to uh, recharge is mostly done by adults, and so kids, if I did talk about naps, you would, I would completely understand if you just checked out of this, but but I want you to engage, and students, I want you to engage, because the rest uh, that we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks is, is a rest that, that a person of any age can do once you understand and know and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal. There is a rest that is specific and unique to those of us who follow Jesus that those who don't follow Jesus really don't have access to that, to that kind of doubt. It's, it's promised in Jesus' words. It's promised in what Jesus offers. And that is unique to us. And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, for the next four weeks because this rest that, I, that we're going to unpack, I think we'll see is much more powerful, much more useful um, than, than, than the whole rest rest to because what we're going to see instead of rest to Jesus gives us a rest from right he gives us a rest from and we're going to talk about how Jesus today gives us a rest from doubt right that's what we're going to hone in on today and for many of us understanding rest is kind of like this Eno behind me right it's like this hammock now now here's what's unique about this hammock let me let me show you some some, some things so in this hammock, it looks nice and comfortable. And if you're paying attention, you notice there's some, some, some hard angles here. Well, that's because in this angle, there are some blocks of wood. Now, we're going to name these blocks of wood in the next four weeks. But, but let me ask you this. Um, how many of you want to get in on this hammock with these blocks of wood in here? Right? That doesn't sound very restful, does it? But what if I took those blocks of wood out? How many of you would want to get in that hammock? Yeah, yeah. Actually, when we were having our huddle back here before we prayed, they thought I should actually be in there during worship and just kind of pop out when it was time to preach. It's an idea. It's an idea. Brainstorming, all ideas are good ideas. Not all ideas actually are good ideas, but when you're brainstorming, all ideas are good ideas, right? But I knew that there were blocks of wood in there, and I wasn't going to get in that thing with blocks of wood. See, here's the deal. A lot of our faith in following Jesus feels like trying to rest with blocks of wood under us. Because there's, there's specific types, there's a specific rest that Jesus has given us where those blocks of wood are out, but yet we put them back in. And doubt is one of, those, one of those blocks of wood. Now, here's the deal, though. Doubt, I say it's one of those blocks of wood. It's actually not. When you think about this hammock, I want you to look at the secure, the, 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 the latches, the carabiners on both ends. That's what doubt is. And so imagine if one of those carabiners was taken off and that thing was laying with only one of them on. Would you want to rest in it then? No. We're going to talk about security today, and we're going to talk about the security that Jesus offers. And what we're going to see is that, is that when, when our hammock of faith, so to speak, is secure on both ends, doubt isn't present. 
And so I want to start off today uh, considering this truth. And we're just going to hit one verse and we're going to jump to Luke. But I want to start off looking at this verse because I want to see where our doubt starts and ends. Now, John was one of the disciples of Jesus, and he wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote Revelation, and then he wrote these three little letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in one of those letters, he makes this comment. He says, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. All right, so, so listen to that again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Now, I want to highlight two words out of that. I want to highlight believe, and I want to highlight know, right? I write these things to you who believe, right? And so what John is doing here is he's writing this letter to the church. He's writing this letter to the church that he's connected with, and and he's writing to those who have gathered together who have said Jesus is their Savior, that that he is the Messiah that that has been promised from the very beginning of the Old Testament. There were also non-Jews in the church, and so to them, Jesus was was their Savior. He was the one that gives them life. He was their leader. And so to them, he's saying, hey, you believe that Jesus is the Christ. You believe that Jesus is your Savior. You have, have believed the good news of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He says, okay, to those of you who believe, This letter that I'm writing actually has a purpose. And and this is what he says the purpose is. And this this is crazy. He says, to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, I write these things to you so that you may know you have eternal life. And so these are people that have already said, yes, Jesus is my Savior. But he's writing this to them so that they will know that they have eternal life. And that's what what the the whole book of, of 1 John is about. Now think about it. And for those of you who are doing the family engagement piece at home, right? If, you, if you've drawn your hammock, what I want you to do is on one side write the word believe and on the other side write the word know. Believe and know. That's, that's what John is, is trying to, to address. Now, why is John addressing both of these? And this is setting us up for the passage that we're going to look at. Because in, in, in years of pastoring and counseling, here's one of the things that I've learned. That our thoughts tell us what we know. But our feelings tell us what we believe. Right? Our thoughts tell us what we know. But our feelings tell us what we believe. For example, you may know that God is your provider. Right? You've read the passages and you know that. You may know that, 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 that there are multiple stories and even evidence in your own life that God provides for you. And then you get that bill. Right? You get that medical bill, you get the car bill, you get, what, you get this big bill that you don't know how to pay for and, and, and your feelings tell you God's not going to provide for this. This is actually going to be the thing where, where, where God drops the ball on you. And so you may know that he's your provider, but in the moment, in that, in that, in that time of emergency, you believe that this is the time that he's not. And so what John is going to do and what I hope to do is is to help you identify when what you know and what you believe are two different things. In the middle, that's where doubt happens. And if we can get what we know and what we believe to be the same thing, then doubt has a harder way in. And so so listen, anybody here, anybody online, anybody ever wonder about these questions? Do you ever wonder, am I saved? Am I really saved? Like, like, yeah, I can't walk down the aisle as a kid. Uh, I, I did it 10 times just to make sure, right? 
I was baptized three times, and yet I still wonder, am I saved? Like, you know the right answers. You said yes, you did all that, but, but, but sometimes it feels like Jesus loves other people more than he loves you. And so you wonder, and so, so doubt creeps in. Maybe you wonder if this whole Jesus thing actually has taken on you, right? Well, guess what? So did the people in the early church. So did the people that John is writing to. Y'all, we are not alone in our doubt. And, and, and Jesus' promises is there to answer that doubt. And so John is encouraging them and telling them, listen, there is a way for what you believe and what you know to be lined up. There is a way for your head and your heart and your feelings to speak the same language. There is a way, looking at the hammock, to be secure on both ends. And so the theological term for this is called security of salvation. Right? And, and here's the deal. There have, been, there have been books and chapters and pages of ink spilled on this, on this idea. And, and, and a lot of times uh, they point to these incredible verses in God's word to, to give you security of your salvation. A lot of times the, the one that we just pointed out so that you may know you have eternal life. And, and, and these theologians, their, their words begin to bounce around in your head. And listen, I think God's word in this matter is critically important. I think having the right theologians bouncing around in your head is, is, is a must. But here's the deal. You can know all the right passages and read all the right theologians and still have doubt. Can't you? Well, what if? What if our security of salvation, what if our doubt doesn't start, the, 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 the resolution of our doubt doesn't start in the scriptures. What if it starts as something even bigger than the scriptures? Something that the scriptures reflect. You see, here's what, here's what we're going to see today, that, that our rest from doubt is actually anchored in the character of God. Right? Because the scriptures reflect the character of God, but, but here's what happens. Anybody ever forget a passage of the Bible? Right? Forget the address so you know where it is. I do that all the time. I can remember most of the verse, but ask me where it is, and I'm like, ah, on my page, it's over here. But I'm not sure what book of the Bible it's in. I have to dig around a little bit to find it. Ever, ever read a great passage, a, a, a great author on something, and man, they, they, they said something so eloquently, and, and it meant something to you in that moment, and then a week later, you're like, gosh, what was that? You see, we can forget passages. We can forget great theologians, but when we see the character of God, and we see what's true about his character, our, our doubt finds its rest there. And we can rest from our doubt when we see the character of God. When we see the character of God, only here can what we know and what we believe line up and give us that rest from doubt. So with all of that, turn with me to Luke. All right, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And y'all, I'm going to tell you, this is a very familiar passage, right? It's the, it's the passage of the, of, the, of the prodigal son. And, 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 and let me tell you what's happening here around this passage. Let me tell you why Jesus told this story, because I think it's so cool, right? So Jesus is hanging out with these tax collectors, is, is uh, what they were then. 
Now, tax collectors, if you were a Jewish person watching Jesus minister to Jewish people, and you saw him with a group of tax collectors, if you were a religious person, you would think, what in the world is this guy doing? Because tax collectors were considered traitors to the Jewish people. Because what a tax collector was, is they were a Jewish person who worked for the Roman government, because Rome occupied Israel at the time, and they worked for the Roman government collecting what? Taxes. Taxes for who? The Jews? No, taxes for the Romans. That's what a tax collector was. And so what they would do is not only would they collect taxes from their fellow brothers and and sisters in the Jewish faith, sometimes they would even hike up the price a little bit to put some in their own pocket. And so to see Jesus with a room full of tax collectors, they were seeing Jesus as a room full of people that they didn't trust, a group of people that that betrayed them. And and so that was very confusing to them. Now, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a minute. I want you to take a minute and I want you to think about a group of people that you just naturally don't trust. Right? Is it politicians? Right now, not your politician, but the other one. Right? Is it them? Right? Is it, is, it, is it media personalities? Again, not the ones you listen to, but the other ones. Right? Now, imagine a room full of those. Whoever those people are, imagine a room full of them. And imagine Jesus sitting right in the midst with them, laughing, carrying on, teaching them the Bible, sharing life with them, how does that make you feel? Right? It's the same way that those who were questioning Jesus' company were feeling. And so what Jesus does to, to the people that he's with, to those tax collectors, because he wants them to know something, and to the people that are judging Jesus for being with those tax collectors, Jesus tells this story. That's the setup for the prodigal son, Right? And so, so, so let's dive in. Verse, chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Now here's the deal. As this story unfolds, the, the father in this story represents God. And I'm going to give a little spoiler alert away. You are one of the two brothers. Right? I'm not going to say which one. That's between you and God. But you are one of the two brothers in this story. So Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. So here's what what the younger son, the younger brother asked. Right? Like, he wasn't asking just for his share of the inheritance. Because when you get an inheritance, it's after the, 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 it's after the person dies, everything's paid for, and what's left is divided among who they want the stuff divided to. That's what an inheritance is. He's not asking for an inheritance because his father's still alive. What he's asking for is he's asking for a share of the estate. He wants, if this was a company, he wants his stocks bought out, and he wants to get out of the company. Right? He, he wants out. And, and so here's what's, here's what's crazy. That money technically wasn't even his to begin with. Because in Jewish culture, all of the resources went to the firstborn son, went to the eldest son to distribute after the father dies and to run the company and to, and to run things after the father dies. So this younger son asking for it before the father died is just this slap in the face that says, hey, 
I want my fair share and I want out of here. And so what he's wanting is he's wanting separation from the father. He's wanting separation from the family. He's wanting to do his own thing because he wanted nothing else to do with them. Well, look at what he did with this money. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Right? And so what did he do with this money that his father gave him? What did he do with with his share of the estate? Is he spent it all. Every last bit of it until he, he had to get a job, and he had to get the only job that he could have, which was working with pigs. Now, the deal with working with pigs, remember, remember, Jesus is telling this story to a group of people. He's telling it to the tax collectors that he's hanging out with, and he's telling it to the people that are judging him for being with those tax collectors. And if you were one of those people judging uh, Jesus for being with these tax collectors, you would be like, pigs? Oh, that is the grossest thing. Not only, not only is he separate, separated from his family, he is separated from God now. Because if you work with pigs, pigs are like this, this animal that, that if you work with them, you can't actually worship anymore. So he's not only separated from family, he has separated himself from the worship of God. And then if you were one of those people judging Jesus, you're probably pretty practical. And you're thinking too, and that brother stinks right now. Right? And so that's where this guy is. And so clearly, he is one of those people like the tax collectors, like the people you thought of. That's what Jesus does with this, with this group of people is he, he, he takes those who are judging him for being with the tax collectors, right? And, and he paints this picture, this guy, this younger brother is just like them. And so look at verse 16. Verse 16, it says, And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. In other words, this guy's working with pigs and seeing the slop that the pigs eat and thinking, man, that looks good, I'm hungry, right? That, that's called low, right? That, that's, that's pretty close to rock bottom, I would imagine. When he had done that, and, and, and uh, let's see, that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I... Perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Right? So so we're pretty clear on, on what happens here. He realizes home is better than where he is in the pigsty. Why? Because his father is there. Right? He realizes that he misses his father. That's what he misses. And he wants to go home. Now, y'all, here is where we see the character of God. And here's what Jesus is showing the tax collectors that are sitting with him. Here's what he's showing those who are judging him for being with the tax collectors. Is that there is a father in this story. And this father is our father. And how he responds to the younger brother and how he responds to the older brother is how he responds to us because it is in his character to do this. And so here is where we get to see what Jesus is communicating about God and his character in this story. And now we get to see why our salvation is secure. 
Because the character of God doesn't change. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, it says this. It says, He arose and, and, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Right? And so here's this son who took his, his part of the business, right? Took it out, spent it all, had nothing, and now he's coming back stinky and empty-handed. And his father is looking for him. And his father has been looking for him so that the moment that he shows up, his father sees him off in the distance. Right? And so what do we see in this character of God? What do we see in this father is that he's waiting for and he's looking for his son. And as soon as he saw him, as soon as he saw his pig smelling, like money squandering, leaving the family behind son, what does he do? Does he point his finger and say, I told you so? Does he point his finger and say, I can't believe you did this? He says he ran to him, which y'all... Not to get super graphic, but, but, but in ancient times when old men would run, it wasn't a pretty thing. Because they, you know, they had these long robes and they would lift them up and throw them over their shoulder and run. So you got these white, hairy legs sticking out, you know, and, and he's running after his son. And when he gets there, he loves him and he embraces him. And he welcomed him home. Now, now y'all, here's the deal. This isn't a new character of God. This is something that as we went through Ezra and Nehemiah and every time we talked about Israel's history, we saw this in God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, who was the first one to show up after? God. God is. He's the one that showed up to walk with them in the garden. He's the one that showed up and covered their their nakedness and their shame. And when Abraham, you know, he called Abraham out and and he was with Abraham the entire time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they were not perfect people by any means, God's presence was still with them and with them and with them. And then with Moses, you see Moses sin multiple times and yet God is with them. And then he takes this nation of Israel that is also making mistakes and sinning and his presence is with them with a a, a pillar of fire by night and smoke by day. And so you you see God's presence over and over and over again. And then God brings these prophets to the nation of Israel just to remind them God is with us. And then Jesus steps onto the scene. And John again says that he is God who has come to dwell among us. And Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus say? He says, God is with you. God has never left you. He is the Father that is welcoming you home. He is the Father that is looking for you. He is the Father that embraces you. You see, He is the Father who loves and has always loved the Son. He is the Father who loves and has always loved you and me. Welcome back, Billy. Right? And he's the father that has longed for our return. However, look at the younger brother's response. Because y'all, this is what we do with God's love. This is why doubt has such a loud voice in our heart. Because as soon as the father hugs him and embraces him and says, welcome home. Look at what the son does in verse 21. 
In verse 21, it says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember, he rehearsed this, right? He was in the pig slop, and he was saying, All right, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against earth, and I've sinned against you. And so when he sees his father, man, he knows what he's going to say. He's going to repent, and he's going he's he's to do the things that he needs to do to get back in good graces with the father. Because you see, the younger brother thinks that what he has done, that his worth to his father has been shattered by it. He thinks that when his father sees him, he sees all the wrong things that he's done. Right? He spent all the money, he has nothing, and he thinks that his love from the father is connected to his behavior seen by the father. You see, here's one of the reasons that we doubt. Here's one of the reasons that we're, what we know and what we believe sometimes don't line up because we doubt when we aren't good enough. Right? We doubt when we sin. We, we, we doubt that this God could actually love us this way. That when we look at something that we don't need to look at, when we do something we don't need to do, or we don't do something that God would have us do, we think, okay, this is enough. This is enough to make God not love me anymore. We, we doubt we're worthy of God's love and attention because in our mind we haven't done what we should do to get it. Right? We know that God loves sinners, but when we're one of them, somewhere between our good enough and not good enough, God draws a line. That's what we feel. Even though we know God loves sinners. When it's us, it just doesn't feel right. And when it doesn't feel right, we doubt. We think this is the sin that will make God turn his back on me. We know God loves us. But we believe he can't love me, right? Not fully, not completely, not like this. Well, I love this, y'all, because look at how the father responds to the son's confession, to the son's repentance in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, notice, who's he talking to? Does he even talk to the son? No, the son's sitting here going, man, I sinned against you, please forgive me. He said, hold on, hold on. And he turns to the servants and he says this, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to party. They began to celebrate. Now now notice here's the son going, Wait, dad, 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 dad. And he turns to the servants and say, put the robe and ring on him. In other words, welcome him back into the family. That was the sign that he was part of the family. That was the sign that, that, that he was his son and, and he was back. Right? And what I love about this is the younger brother confesses the wrongdoing. He even practiced laying out this plan to, to rebuild his worth. Right, Like I'll work like one of the servants and one of your hired people. I got this. I can, I can rebuild. I can earn for you back what I took. And the father doesn't even acknowledge it. Because that's not what the father's looking for, right? He's not looking for his son to prove that he has worth, right? See, when we see this, there's, at least there's a part of me that I want the younger brother to confess, right? I want there to be justice. I want there to be retribution. I want there to be some sort of consequence for what he did. But here's the crazy love of God. Here's the crazy character of God. Is that this father absolutely ignored the confession. Can you imagine? 
absolutely ignored it. And he ignored the plan for the son to rebuild his worth, not even a comment about it. Instead, he says, I got an idea. Let's throw a party because you were dead and now you're alive again. Let's celebrate. And so there's this reinstatement, you know, like, like he's part of the family. Now picture this in the story. So, so you're one of the people judging Jesus for being tax collectors. You're one of the tax collectors that are there. And you're like, this is crazy. This is crazy. But then the older brother steps into the story. Remember him? Look at, look, look at his response in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field. And as he came, he drew near to the house and he heard the music and dancing, right? That's what he hears coming from the tent, right? And he called one of his servants and asked, what, what's going on? What do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he, being the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when he came, the one who's devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him. And so, y'all, here's the deal. The older brother's out working in the field, probably doing twice the amount of the work, right? Because his younger brother's gone now. So now he has to take on what he's doing too. And so he's sitting there and he's got all this work and he comes to find the best of his work is being consumed by the younger brother again because guess where the fattened calf came from? The field that the older brother was working in, right? The stuff that they're partying with was the stuff that the older brother had been working hard for as long as the younger brother had been gone. And now he comes back and the tent is like, is like bumping, right? Right? There's stuff going on. And he's like, how in the world did that happen out there while I've been out here working? And I've been doing everything that you've asked me to do. And you're going to give him a party? Where's my party? And see, his response is anger. And now the older brother wants separation from the family. He didn't even want to go in to the party. You see, here's the other reason we doubt. And you know, I think this is probably where a lot of us doubt from. We doubt when we are good enough. So we don't just doubt when we aren't good enough. We doubt when we are good enough. And we're taking all the steps and we're having our quiet times and we're memorizing the verses and we're, we're in our growth group and we're doing all the things and yet it seems like God loves someone else more than they love us. It seems like the blessing of God is going somewhere else instead of us because we're the one doing by all the work. Like I said, this feast came from the field, right? In, in the field that this guy has been working in and, and it's again being, being eaten by this, by this younger brother. You see, we doubt when we're good enough but the blessing of God seems to go to someone else. Anybody ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand, not anything, but just yeah, right? We've been there when we've seen the blessing go to someone else when we're doing the work and the party's going on someplace else. You see, we've been there when the fruits of our work are being enjoyed by someone else. And here's what goes on in our head. We know that God loves us. That's our head. Yeah, I know that God loves me. But it feels like he loves them more. That's what we believe. Yeah, he, I know he loved me, but man, he sure does love her a whole lot more. 
And so we doubt that if he loves them more, maybe he doesn't even love me at all. Now look at how their father responds to the older brother in verse 31. It says, and he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Now remember Jesus is standing in the midst of these tax collectors talking to them and to the people that judged him for being with the tax collectors. And he's saying, y'all listen, these people that I'm with, they were lost and now they're found. And those of you who are sitting outside the room judging me for being in here, You've had me all along. They didn't. And so, so what he's saying is like, listen, you, you've got this all wrong, people. You think that life is found in what we have and in fattened calves and in goats and in milk, right? But what he's saying is that your life is found in me. And I've been right here. And I am right here. You see, Jesus is dropping this bomb here because he's saying, get this, That life with God isn't found in our obeying God's rules. And our life with God isn't lost in disobeying God's rules. But our life with God is found in the character of that God. Who loves us and who gave his life for us. You see, life with God is found in a relationship with God. Repeat that word with me. Life with God is found in a relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you're good enough. It doesn't matter if you're not good enough. God's desire is to be with you. Right? His character is to be with you no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done. He will always be there. Right? I was, this really good friend of mine came to Christ. And I've, I've heard this in two different occasions from two different people, but a very similar story. That they realized that when they said yes to Jesus and they looked back on their entire life, they were like, one of the things I realized is that Jesus has been with me my entire time and I kept bumping into him and I didn't realize it was him. Because God is always with us. You see, the heart of doubt is found in this phrase. It's, am I worthy of God's love? See, that's where our doubt, that's where the the carabiner comes off, is when we answer the question, no, I'm not worthy of God's love. The, the, The fact of the matter is, Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you're good enough or bad enough. That's actually the wrong question to ask. That God's desire is to be with you, and his character is to be with you no matter what. No matter what you've done, he is always there and will always be there. You see, the the heart of doubt, even though it's found in this phrase, am I worthy of God loves, doubt says you're not good enough, or doubt says you're doing all the right things, but but obviously he loves people more, so therefore you must not be worthy of God's love. Like I said, it's the wrong question. Because the answer to our doubt isn't found in us. The answer to our doubt is found in the character of God. It's found in Jesus. It's not found in our behavior. It's not found in what we know or what we don't know. The answer to our doubt is found in this. The answer to our doubt is found in our always with us God. 
always with us. Never leaves you, never forsakes you. To the point, now the people listening to this at this time, the tax collectors and those judging Jesus for being with the tax collectors, they didn't know how this story ends. But as the story goes on, we see Jesus crucified, we see him resurrected, and we see him spend days with his disciples after his resurrection. And the book of Matthew captures this great little thing that Jesus said right before he ascended into heaven. And he's telling his disciples, oh, and by the way, not only, you know, not only are you to go make disciples of, the, of, the, of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything thing I command you to do. But then he gives them this last little reminder. Oh, and by the way, like it's always been, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. You see, the answer to our doubt isn't found in us. It's found in our always with us, God. It's found in knowing that we have a God who loves us and who, who accepts us completely. A God who never leaves us. A God who doesn't just love you, but likes you. You see, his character is one that's looking for and celebrating the lost coming home. And his character is also found in having a relationship with him today, just like the, older, the younger brother did and the older brother could. And so we're going to take communion today. Now, granted, listen, y'all, this isn't a fattened calf. Right, and 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 it's not uh, uh, you know that, but what it does is it symbolizes the death of Jesus, who died to pay for all the penalties of our sins, so we can have a good and right relationship with the God who loves us and the God who made us, and it symbolizes the fact that through Jesus we can enjoy this relationship with God. We can enjoy it like the younger brother is in the tent, and we can enjoy it like the older brother could have. If he had gone in that tent with them. And so you see, here's the deal. Either you are the younger brother who needs to return to Jesus today. Right? And maybe that's you. Maybe you're watching this online. And, 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 and maybe today is the day that you say yes to Jesus. Yes to his offer of salvation. Yes to letting him be your leader and no longer you. And realizing that your relationship with God is not based on your behavior. But it is based on what Jesus did. And what Jesus did was good and perfect, and it was for you. And so maybe today is the day you say yes to him, and you return to the Father, just like the younger brother did. But some of us in this room, and some of us watching, were the older brother. right? And we think this stuff really isn't for us. We've got this down. Well, that's you. And the Father is inviting you to the party as well. Because you're the one that doesn't understand the love of the Father either. Because see, we think that we're good enough as older brothers. But then we find out that we are the complete wrong measures altogether. And that our focus is on Jesus. That we don't need to measure us because Jesus has already taken away the ruler. He's taken away our good and he's taken away our bad. And in its place, he's given us a relationship with God. And he brings us to the Father. And so this is what we celebrate today. And so, so Cam's going to play some music. What I want you to do, if you're at home, grab some stuff to take the elements with us. And, and if you're here in person, I want you to take a minute and just, and just pray and think before the Lord. Are you the younger brother? Are there parts of your life where, where doubt is embedded because, because you're holding something back from God? Or are you the older brother? 
The older brother, you think you've got it all together, and, and, and yet you still doubt. There's still an area where you need to submit to the Father and come into his presence. And so I want you to, to are you the, the, the younger brother thinking, I'm not good enough, but yet I'm, I'm compassionately loved? Or are you the, the older brother needing to see God's love for you, not based on your good enough? but based on the never-ending love of God. Either way, Jesus said this in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so this party is a celebration of him, a celebration of Jesus. And if you're a Jesus follower, and, and you're welcome to take these elements, and if you're not, maybe this is your first evidence of faith, your first declaration of faith is to take communion with us. Because let me assure you, when we know and believe that God loves you and that he will never leave you, here and only here can you find rest from your doubt. So let me pray for us. When you're ready, come up and grab them, and then we will take them together. The gluten-free ones are clearly labeled. Don't worry if there aren't any gluten-free ones. Take the gluten-free ones because we're switching to all gluten-free anyway. So, so just clear them out, all right? Let me pray for us. Jesus, may we come to you as people in desperate need of God the Father, the Father who loves us, the Father who looks for us, the Father who longs to be with us, the Father who hears our confession but isn't moved by it. He's moved by our presence with him, the Father who celebrates over us, who, who doesn't condemn us, right? Your scripture said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but it is the kindness and mercy of God that moves us to repentance. And so, Father, may we step into your presence right now and today, and may we realize that your presence is always with us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Whenever y'all are ready, come on down and take the elements. So Jesus sat around with his disciples having um, uh, Passover together. And, and we look back at it and we see it as communion. And, and, and he was having this last meal with them. Uh, and so much happened in that night when you put the four Gospels together to see what happened in that night. And it must have blown their minds. And, 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 and yet he did it for them without them fully understanding what it means. Now it became clear to them later. But when they took it, they didn't understand. And y'all, I want us to know God's character and God's love is just like that. Right now, we don't fully understand it, right? But what we know is good enough. What we know is that we have got a, a Father who loves us completely and unconditionally, so much so that he would put on human flesh and he would die on a cross and he would raise from the dead just to show that we could trust him. And so we take these elements together, declaring our trust. Jeremiah 6.16 says this. It says, stand at the crossroads and look and ask where the ancient path is. Walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. You see, this is our ancient path. This is where the rest for our souls is found. So if you would open up the, the cracker first. 
on the bottom. It's his body shed for us, his body broken for us. You can open up the top for the juice. His blood shed for us. Jesus, we go into these last couple of songs, and I pray that we see you and we know you better leaving this place than we did walking in. In Christ's name we pray, amen.